Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Some of you are frustrated. You are looking at all of the biblical, theological, rich knowledge that you have stored up. You are looking at the many thick Christian books that are sitting upon your shelves at home or on your devices. You are remembering the 20 versions and translations of the Bible that are on your phone. You are thinking about all of the sermons you've downloaded and listened to and the sermons you've heard here week after week, day after day, year after year, decade after decade. And all of that's here like a thousand pounds of knowledge. And then you look over here at your life. You say, why at times does this seem so light? Why do I read John Owen and look at pornography? How can I have memorized so many passages of Scripture and attended so many marriage conferences and treat my wife poorly at home? How's that possible? And so you're frustrated, and rightly so. One temptation with this kind of frustration will be that you might think, well, the knowledge is useless. It hasn't helped me. So maybe the problem is too much knowledge, and we need to just get away from that, and I just need to focus on this. I need to be a better husband, and I need to stop looking at pornography. I need to start doing the right thing. Now, on the surface, there's something to that that sounds very good. I don't deny that. But please don't do that. Please don't think that if you have a lot of knowledge of God through his word and not much doing of it in your life, that the problem is the knowledge of God. That's not the problem. Listen, you're the problem. <laughs> That's not the problem. Your Bible's not the problem. The good Christian theological works you have and have read, those are not the problem. The sermons, as long as they're good biblical sermons, those are not the problem. Please keep reading your Bible. Keep memorizing scripture. Keep hearing sermons. Maybe you need to hear more of them. Go download them and go listen to them this week. Keep reading those good, rich works like the ones Kier pointed out in his Sunday school this morning or others. Next quarter, next month, we're going to have some books starting to be available out here in the foyer even. Books that we say, these are good, read these. Knowledge is not the problem, but you're right to feel frustrated if there's a huge disparity. Lots of knowledge, very little doing. Here's what the Bible itself says. Be doers of the word. James says, and not hearers only. You see that word only? It does not say be doers of the word and not hearers. <laughs> it says be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
So hear the word and do the word. We still have to adhere to the great Shema of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel. We need to hear the word in its various forms. Listening, reading, etc. But you're right to feel uncomfortable here. If the problem's not the knowledge itself, what's the problem? It's you, that's true, but what specifically? It's us. What specifically for us? How do you bridge the gap between all you know that's right and true and good and what you are on Wednesday evening or in your cubicle or on the line or at school? How do you bridge this gap? As one biblical counselor put it, and I think he's exactly right, the way to bridge the gap between what you know and what you are is called meditation. If the Bible's not changing your life, it's not a problem with the Bible. It is a problem with what you're doing with the Bible. You need not just to hear the Bible, you need to meditate on the Bible, not a worldly meditation that empties your mind, just the opposite. One that takes the Bible, puts it in your mind. So here, take as an example. Last week, we saw, do not be anxious about anything. And you all did that this week, right? Completely, (laughs) all week long. No, we didn't, okay? Okay. But we are growing in doing that. How? If you heard that last week, you saw it in your Bible, on your lap, and you didn't do it, what's the problem? is that you saw it, you heard it, and you forgot it. The problem was that you let it get away like a bird. It flew away. And now you just got it back because we're talking about it. That's why you were anxious this week. You let the passage get away. As James, in that same passage, puts it, the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the scriptures, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, But a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The problem was hearing, forgetting. The answer is hearing, remembering, meditating, applying, doing. Hearing in both cases, but you do something different in those cases. And meditation is the difference. Do not be anxious. That has to fill your mind and you have to think about it. You have to do what the old Puritans like to call chewing the cud. (laughs) It's a very beautiful picture. But you've seen a cow takes the grass with his teeth, chews it, salivates, crushes it. And if you know about the gastronomy of cows, you know what happens after. I won't go into detail, but let's just say he chews it some more. So he's chewing that grass, chewing, chewing, chewing it to get the nutrient, to break it down. He doesn't... (gasps) Inhale the grass, and if you inhale God's word and expect it to feed you, you're wrong. You have to chew it, chew it, chew it. You have to think about it. That's what you're doing partly here in a sermon. We're taking a passage, you notice we go slowly, so that we can go slowly and meditate on the passage. Say, how does it apply? Look at it from over here. Look at it from over here. Look at this word, this word, this word. Chew on it some more. How does it apply to this part of life? What about this part of life? Let's ask this question and this question of it and try to answer that. That's called meditating. You should do it here on a Sunday. That's what we're doing together. You should do it every day. 
Memorize scripture and do it at work. Get up in the morning, get in your quiet time, read the Bible, ask those questions, maybe journal, meditate on it, get good biblical counseling, get good homework, do the homework, meditate on scripture. That is how you bridge the gap from what you know to what you do. The problem's not what you know. It's meditation. The problem is that we're too much like butterflies just landing very lightly on flowers of God's word and then a single wisp of wind blows us away to another one where you need to be a bee. You need to go down into that flower and stop there and suck out the nectar and not leave until you have. It's meditation on the word of God. The reason I bring this up is because of this last exhortation of Paul in our text. He has come to the end. In some ways, I see this as a summary of all his exhortations in Philippians. And where does he go? He goes to your mind. He goes to what you do in here. Today, we are talking about the Christian mind, specifically what you meditate on. So let's look at that here in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. As I already noted, we have come to the last of Paul's exhortations. Usually when we get to this place in any of Paul's letters, we're basically done. He has a few closing comments, sends some greetings, and it's the end. Philippians stands out in this way because Philippians, he wrote in response to a gift that the Philippians had sent to him. So beginning next week, we're going to look at him saying thank you for the gift. That's the rest of this book. But if you take that section out, this is the end, basically, and we'll see greetings at the end. You can see that here in the text. He starts, finally, brothers. Not finally as in I have nothing else to say, but transitioning toward the end. Finally, brothers. And then you see at the end this benediction, really, which is similar to the peace of God we were promised last week. But in this case, it's the God of peace himself be with you. It says, we'll be with you. It's a sort of blessing if, and only if, you obey the command that he gives. So both what comes right before, finally, brothers, what comes after, the God of peace will be with you, or focusing our attention on this last of Paul's commands, which seems to be, in some ways, a sort of summary, a sort of greatest of all Paul's commands in this book. Certainly, if you obey this, you will obey every other passage that Paul gives throughout the book of Philippians. 
So this should be bold and highlighted in your mind, if not in your Bible. We are looking at here your thought life. So we're at church and we have all dressed nicely and prettied ourselves up, (laughs) but we're just throwing that away and we are going beneath that and saying, this is your thought life on Wednesday. When you're not at church, when you're maybe not with believers, what do you think about? That's who you are. And Paul's last command is about that part of you. Think about these things, and we'll see that will lead to practicing these things. If you need an outline for today to help you follow along, I'm going to outline it like this. What kind of mind is the Christian mind? First, it is a discerning mind. Secondly, it is an active mind. Discerning mind, active mind. Let's see what your mind needs to be in this command of Paul. First, Paul commands you to have a discerning mind. Look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think, that's your mind, you have to use your mind to do that, think about these things. Now, because Paul has given us this series of very important terms in regard to what you should think about, true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, worthy of praise. You have to come up with a device to remember those if you memorize that verse. I've got one. You probably do too. Because he has this great list of words of what we're supposed to think about, you might miss another word in this verse that's actually very important. And that's the word, whatever. Notice that in every phrase, whatever is true. He doesn't say what is true? In verse 9, he does. In the Greek and the English, he does say what is. But here, it's whatever. That's a specific Greek word, so we have an English word to match it. Whatever. Anything that meets these criteria, you have to think about those things. Why does he word it that way? It's because by God's common grace, do you know God's common grace? It's not a grace that's boring, it's common, not at all. It's a grace that God gives commonly to all people, which is what keeps us from being as bad as we could be before we know Christ. Have you noticed that the world is very corrupt? It is what we call in theology, people are born totally depraved, total depravity, But when we say total depravity, we're born in Adam, in sin, in total depravity, we don't mean that any of us are born as evil as we could be. Praise God. (laughs) Praise God for that. We mean total in the sense that every single part of us has depravity touching it, has a corruption in it from the time we are born, our will, our thought life, everything. God's common grace is the hand of God by which even when we don't know Christ, and even those who never know Christ, God reaches out and restrains us so kindly from being as bad as we all could be. 
Society is bad, yes, but it could be so much worse. The globe has a lot of issues, international political issues and so forth, but it could be so much worse. And it is simply God's common grace that is restraining it from being worse. And if God's restraining us from being as bad as we can be, that means however much he restrains that, there's something good. Not ultimately good, because ultimate good is God-focused and outside of Christ we're not, but still something good. So whatever is true, think about these things. Actually, many of the terms on this list, the Philippians would have known before they came to Christ. And in Hellenistic, which is another way of saying Greek-influenced culture in the Roman Empire, most of these would have been considered virtues. Some Christian virtues like humility were radical, but a lot of them were already by conscience and by common grace understood by unbelievers to be good. That's why Paul can say if there's anything worthy of praise or commendable, commendable by who? By even unbelievers with common grace. They don't get everything right, but by God's common grace, there are some virtues that many people outside of Christ will recognize. There is in the world a spirit, Paul says, now at work in the sons of disobedience, so I don't want to be understood as saying unbelievers or ourselves outside of Christ, we know what's good. No, we're actually very confused. But by God's common grace, we're not as confused as we could be. There are things by God's common grace, even in a very messed up world like ours, that even outside the church can be true. Lovely, commendable, honorable, just, pure, again, not in an ultimate sense, okay? But in some sense, and here we have said, listen, whatever you find in your life, whatever it is that meets these criteria, think about them. So, if you're a believer, a Christian, you will understand that many times we have been charged with being narrow-minded. Christian, are you narrow-minded? You are. And you're not, okay? You are and you're not. And let me explain that. On the one hand, you are not narrow-minded when, when it comes to the Christian mind because of the whatever in our text. He's saying what. Ever you find that meets these criteria, even by God's common grace, anywhere. If you find them in Christianity, that makes a lot of sense. In the Bible, they're everywhere. But whatever you find that meet these criteria, think about them. So listen, if your unbelieving neighbor invites you to the neighborhood because you just moved there by bringing you chocolate chip cookies, they're not a believer you don't have to think this is a diabolical act hidden under chocolate chips. No, what is this? Not an ultimate good act, but this is God's common grace. And you can think about what they did. Wow, that was a kind gesture. And when someone else moves into this neighborhood, I want to be the sort of person who brings them chocolate chip cookies. What are you doing? You're obeying the text. That was honorable. It's whatever was honorable. Think about that. 
Sometimes, if you're watching a movie, good movie, okay? Some are just junk. Don't watch those, all right? But if you're watching a good movie, it may have been acted, directed, produced by unbelievers. And yet, by God's common grace, at times, there may be a message or a theme in the movie that resonates with what's really true, whatever is true. Maybe it is a movie with a soldier who sacrifices in love to protect the weak. And you can look at that and go, that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's evil of the devil. Listen, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, you can think about that. Long ago, beginning, I think, with Augustine, the old church fathers and Christian thinkers liked to speak of plundering the Egyptians. Because when Israel was released out of captivity in Egypt, they asked their neighbors for their gold and their silver, and their neighbors gave it to them. So Israel left their captors rich with their captors' possessions. You have to exercise incredible caution, and there's so much more we could say that we're not going to for sake of time. And yet, what Whatever is true that you find in high school, they make you read Lord of the Flies, and you say, why am I reading this book? <laughs> but you can look at that and say, okay, there's a lot you might not like here, but there is a semi-accurate portrayal of natural human persons in that book. And you can thank God for his common grace in allowing that. Whatever's true, honorable, so forth. However, in a world like ours, there's a lot that's not true. There's a lot that's not honorable, not just, not pure, none of these things. So how are you going to know the whatever in the world that meets this criteria? You are going to need what we call a discerning mind. You need discernment. Here's the first way you get discernment. Just look at the descriptors themselves. These are the things you're looking for. It tells you right here. Whatever is true. That means that here's your Christian mind. Your mind has to be willing to accept reality even when it's inconvenient. This is the Christian way, the true Christian way of thought. We don't just accept things that are true because they're convenient and neglect the things that are true that are not convenient. We Christians, more than anyone, are committed, the best we can, to reality. Others create fantasies and unrealities to justify sin. We don't do that. We're committed to what's true. And if you find things that correspond with reality as it actually is, then that you can think about. Or again, whatever is honorable. This should fill your mind. This means your mind throughout the week should not be the sort that is filled completely with dark or irreverent humor. You shouldn't, in your mind, through the week, please continue being humorous, that's fine, but it, in your mind during the week, there shouldn't be a lightness about you that's not honorable. You shouldn't look like unruly middle schoolers in their conversation sometimes. Everything's light, even heavy things. This says, no, your thought life is to be honorable. And whatever you find that's weighty and honorable, giving due weight to what's weighty, think about that. The Christian mind dwells on what is just. 
Meaning what is right and fair and appropriate for everyone. Not just people like me, not just my group, my church, myself, my family. No, but what's right or just for everyone. Or this word just can also mean right Christian behavior. That's what we think about. So if you see that happening, praise God. Courts many times have not passed down justice, not just in our country, anywhere in the world, forever. But many, many times they have. Praise God for his common grace. And when they do, oh, think about that. Your mind should meditate on whatever is pure, meaning not mixed with impure motives, with sexual immorality, with worldly cravings that come in and distort your point of view. No, thinking that is clear and pure and focused on God and what is right. Whatever you find like this, ah, think about these things, approve of these things. The Christian mind dwells on what is lovely and what is commendable, which are very similar. Meaning, there are virtues that even unbelievers can, when they're thinking, okay, approve of. So for example, a good work ethic or integrity where you're the same person at work and at home and at church. Or simple kindness and courtesy to others. Those are lovely, commendable things. When you encounter those, when you see those, see them and think about these things. Let those be the thoughts in your mind. If there's any excellence, meaning virtuous excellence, moral excellence, doing very, very well in how we interact with each other. If there's anything that can be held in high esteem, worthy of praise by men or God, when he says, if there's any, there is any, in those cases, think on those things, narrowly on those things. So on the one hand, are Christians narrow-minded how many things fall under those categories? So many. And wherever you find them, think about them, observe them, meditate on them, dwell on them. Ah, you can be so broad-minded when it comes to what is good. You are allowed to think as much as you want about everything in this world and beyond it that is good. And that's a lot of things. <laughs> So are Christians narrow-minded first? No, it's whatever meets these categories. Let's think and talk about those things. On the other hand, are Christians narrow-minded? Yes. Because to think about whatever is good means you have to not meditate on all that is bad. We are not to be thinking regularly about what is false, what is dishonorable, unjust, impure, unlovely, condemnable, full of vice, or too ugly to speak about. We have to encounter those things in this world. You can't get away from that. You deal with them, you put them to rest, and you move on. That is not to characterize your thought life as a Christian. So are you narrow-minded? Yes, because very narrowly we are working to push out what is vicious and evil and to focus on what is good. So in that way, Christians are narrow-minded. To do this will require of you a discerning mind. Now some of you 
maybe feel a little uncomfortable right now because I have hardly even talked about the Bible itself yet. I understand that, and we're coming to that. But I want you to know first that that whatever is there for a purpose, and that is that God, by common grace, has put some good things in this world, and that should characterize our thought life. But that leads us to this next question, which gets us to the Bible. We're going there right now. Which is, how do I know when I encounter things in the world what things are good and meet these criteria and what things are bad? Because you'll read one news article and with great fervor it will say this point of view is good, right, honorable, and just. And then you'll read another news article and it will say the exact opposite point of view is good, right, honorable, and just. So there you are like Solomon with the two women saying, that's my child, that's my child, and you've got the two voices, and you have to be wise enough to discern whose child is this. And just as God gave wisdom to Solomon to do that, God wants to give you wisdom to discern what is good, right, honorable, just, because the Christian mind is a discerning mind. The way that you do this is given to us in verse 9. Look at verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. I'm going to take that command, practice these things, and put it over here for a second. It's going to be under our second heading. And I just want to focus on what comes before it. What are we to practice as Christians? What we've learned and received and Heard and seen in Paul. Uh Uh-oh. I've not seen Paul at all. (laughs) Is this a problem? He's been dead a very long time, and none of us have encountered him. We've not heard or seen anything in him. We've not learned directly from him, nor received any teaching directly from Paul. So is this something that was helpful to the Philippians and useless to us? Actually, this is more helpful to us than it was to them. Because what is the Bible? except the wisdom, the teaching, the example of the holy prophets and apostles of God, including Paul. That's what your Bible is. Have you noticed that your Bible has sections that are direct teaching like this and many sections that are story, the book of Acts and elsewhere, histories? That's because in this book, you have both Paul's teaching that you're receiving, that you're hearing from him, and his example that you're seeing in him. The Philippians had it firsthand. We have it secondhand, but through the inspired scriptures, which is actually much better. What Paul is saying here then is for us, look, there are things that you have received from not just Paul, but all the apostles and all the prophets, and it's right here. This, notice, he doesn't say whatever this time. What does he say? What? (laughs) because he knows it's more narrow now. What you have heard, seen, received, learned from Paul, right here, these things you practice. You have the scriptures, therefore you have a way of discerning the whatevers of life. You have a way through the Bible of discerning what's good and what's bad. That's how you can do the whatever of verse 8. How do you know if something's true, good, pure, just, when everyone claims that they are that? Because you take what you've received through the apostles, what the Philippians received through Paul, what you've received from the scriptures, and that gives you a discerning mind. 
to separate the good from the bad. I know that today, in the historical epic we happen to find ourselves in, somewhat by accident from our point of view, but not by God's, today there's a lot of glorifying of what's gray and fuzzy. Most things are argued, they're not certain. Even our superheroes, you know it, you've seen the movies, even the superheroes are very questionable. (laughs) And there's just a sort of glorying in the gray. And there is some gray in life, but it's not all of it. But there's some glorying in the gray fuzziness of life. There are philosophical reasons for that today in the West, but we'll talk about that. But you need to know that God's intention for you is not to just walk around confused about what's really good. God wants you to have a discerning mind so that you can live every day saying, this is good, this is bad. This is good, this is bad. I will focus on this that's good, but this is not good. I'm not going to focus on that. You can know the difference between them. How? What you've seen in the example of Paul in Scripture, what you've heard from Paul in all his inspired letters, what you've learned from him, what you've received from him. He says, in me. The Bible is meant to give you a discerning mind so that you can broadly take in what's good elsewhere, but it has to be through the lens of Scripture. Where we get turned around and do just the opposite, really, of what this verse is arguing is when we take something outside of Scripture and we say, that looks good, and then instead of looking through the Bible and seeing the good, We take that and make it our lens through which we look at everything, including the Bible. So for some, they will take talk radio, or some will take news stations. Others will take psychology today. Other people are going to take their friend group and their ideas and opinions. Others are going to take influencers on social media. Whatever it is, good literature, whatever. And we take that, and maybe there is something good in there. But instead of looking through the Bible to discern what's good and bad, because there's almost always a mix, we take that and we say, we'll use this to discern everything else in our lives. That is wrong. Stop doing that. That is not good. That's going to get you in a bad place and you're going to accept a lot of bad things and think they're good. You have to be in this. You can read other books. You can listen to news and read articles. You can read literature. You can watch movies if you do it like this through the Bible. And then you say, that's good. That's bad. You go over there. I'm not going to dwell on you. I'm not going to make you part of my thought life. I'm going to make you part of my thought life. That is a healthy Christian mind. If you're experiencing a lot of issues in your life right now, a lot of anxieties, a lot of troubles, you may just consider whether you're not doing that. You'll end up taking in a lot that's bad, and it will lead to a lot of problems. You can look at the whatever of the world and discern what's good if you have the what of Scripture to guide you. The Christian mind is a discerning mind. I want to move now from that to our second point, which is the Christian mind in its true form, is also an active mind. So now we're going to bring back the actual commands that we haven't really talked about. Bring those back. Verse 8, what is the command? Think about these things. Verse 9, what is the command? Practice these things. Now, if you think about what Paul says you have to think about, 
Notice, true, honorable, just, pure, so forth. One general word that describes all of these is good. Think about good things. Okay, now go to verse 9. What does Paul command you to practice? He commands you to practice what you've learned in him through the scriptures, what you've received as his teaching from God, what you've seen in his example, what you've heard in him, from him, about him. What is one word we could use to describe the life that scripture describes and that Paul exemplified and taught? Good. <laughs> it's the good life, no matter what anyone else says. That's the good in life. So really, in verse 8, you're being commanded to think about what is good. And in verse 9, you're being commanded to practice what is good. I know verse 8 has the think about and verse 9 has the practice. So you might be tempted to think, oh, I can think about things in the world, the what a, but I've got to practice what's in the Bible. No, 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 no. Think about and practice what is good as you see it in the world through the scriptures. Those are calling you to the same thing. To us, the life of thinking and the life of doing often seem separate. Some of us lean in one way or we lean in the other way in this. We either like to think big thoughts about the Bible, theology, and everything. Or we like to just be doing, doing, and be active, no time for thinking. And yet, here you have, think about these things and practice these things. So, no matter what your personality, you don't have an option. Which of those are you going to disobey? <laughs> you need to be thinking about what's good and doing what's good. And in the Bible, unlike in us, those are never separated. The Christian mind thinking about is an active mind. It does. You can see that right here. Many people, even prominent Bible teachers who know a lot of things, sometimes you see them in the news. They fall into grave, horrible sins. And you may be tempted, again, to think, well, their knowing didn't help them at all, so why should I know? I'll just do. No, no, no. The command is to think about and the command is to practice. So if some have knowledge without practicing, it's their problem. It's not the problem of the knowledge. If you know a lot about God, the Bible, Scripture, theology, you name it, but your life's not changed, you don't really know a lot about God, theology, the Bible. You just don't. You might think because of the data that you've gleaned and maybe inhaled, you've got a lot of data. You know what the word immutable means when we talk about God or aseity. Maybe you can describe the omniscience of God. You know a lot of really big words that are true about God. So you and maybe people around you think, whoa, you are a college-level Christian at least. And you go home and treat your family like dirt. Listen, you're in kindergarten. You don't know about God. Who are you fooling? Because in the Bible, the Christian mind that really knows about God, it's the main content of the Bible and about everything else, lives it out. <laughs> and if you're not seeing your knowledge turn into doing, then the knowledge is not being meditated upon to become doing. You don't yet know, Paul says, as you ought to know. That's what he says of knowledge that doesn't do, that doesn't act. 
If you know, blessed are you if you do these things. That's the Christian mind. To meditate, like we said, is to take in. He says, think about. And that word he uses for think about in verse 8 is a strong word for thinking. It's not the normal that we've seen. It's a strong word. You take it in. You mull over truth about Scripture and you don't let it go. Like Jacob wrestling the angel. You grab it and it says, let me go. And you say, I will not let you go until I apply you, until I know you to be true, until I feel the sense of the reality of this verse do not be anxious about anything. and I will not let you go until I have. That's meditation. And when you've done that, then maybe you're out of kindergarten, okay? But that's the way we treat the Christian mind. It's not abstract all by itself without any practice. They go together. One last point I want to make about this as we draw toward a close is maybe you're aware of this and maybe you're not. Maybe you need to be. Maybe you don't. I don't know. But you may know that in the larger circle of which we'd be considered a part, what's called Reformed Evangelicalism, if that means anything to you, this would be a lot of believers pretty like-minded to us right here, high view of God, high view of Scripture. There was a sort of miniature revival that took place in this circle in the 2000s. Many of you came to Christ at that time, maybe watching Paul Washer on YouTube or something like that. Many of you came to Christ at that time or just were excited to see a high view of God and Scripture extolled and embraced even by younger people. That was the 2000s, 20 years ago now, surprisingly. You may be aware that there has been a shift away from that sort of early optimism, that early excitement, which at that point, the feeling was, if we get a high view of God and really know God, J.I. Packer's Knowing God was one of the main books at that time. If we really know God, truly, then everything else in our life will fall into place. If we're looking at him the way scripture presents him and not as the world does, then our lives will fall into place and we'll become what we need to become. That was the optimism of the 2000s. We're 20 years later now, and there's a lot less of that kind of optimism. A lot of people now sort of feel, nobody's saying it probably, but I think the feeling is, well, we tried that and it didn't work because reformed evangelicalism along with all evangelicalism seems to have burst apart. Everybody seems to be fighting about political things or other stuff. Some people have turned away from this early focus on God and now are in political activism as the main thing. Other people have turned away from this focus on God and are looking to secular psychology or to history, sociology, to psychology, to something to tell us what's actually true because we no longer trust the church or the word of God to give that to us. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Listen, that early feeling that knowing God, really knowing, thinking about what's true of God and knowing him personally through the scriptures, that that would then lead to practice these things to a life transformed by God and the gospel. That was right. That remains right. If many people with a high view of God in Scripture have done many bad things that are not in line with a high view of God in Scripture, that is user error. 
I don't want you to assume that we don't need a high view of God anymore. We don't need a high view of scripture. It doesn't even work. Let's just do stuff or something. <laughs> what would we do? <laughs> this is what you need. And if you're wondering practically, how? How do I get a high view of God? How do I have that actually change my life? So I have active thinking about God and theology and scripture. Well, there are a lot of ways. Meditation's the point. Even here in this room, next quarter, beginning next month, 9 a.m., Sunday school, we're going to be having a 13-week teaching on God's attributes, high view of God, but specifically, how do we apply them on Wednesday when you're in your cubicle? That might seem like, wow, what a novel idea for a class. It shouldn't feel that way because here, thinking about these things and practicing these things, that's the normal Christian mind. We don't always do it, but the Bible does. Our focus here at Faith Bible Church, actually for the next three months in our podcast here, teaching ACE, is going to be on God himself, his attributes, who he is. And we're unapologetic about that. <laughs> actually, I'm very excited about that, and I hope you are too. We're going to be reading books, thinking about God, talking about God. Think about these things, what's good, and then practice these things. The Christian mind has to be discerning through Scripture to know what's good. And the Christian mind hasn't known until it does what it learns. Let's pray together. Lord God, God of peace, you promise to be with us, but you do put this condition for you to be here in a unique way to bless. We have to fill our minds with those things which are true and honorable and just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, worthy of praise. We have to choose every day, including Wednesday, to be thinking about that. And Lord, you yourself are the summation of all that is good in the world. It comes from you. It returns to you. So, Lord, we direct our attention again to you as the God of peace. And we pray to you, help us not to be boring Christians entangled in mundane affairs without a sense of the grandeur and the glory of the God who calls us to this life and is with us in it. Forbid that we'd be bored or boring because of a low view of you, because we are not obeying the command to think about these glorious, good, right, true things. Please help us to receive them in the scriptures, to embrace them with all our heart, to meditate on them violently until we see them in our actual lives, so that we may be like our heavenly Father, perfect as you are perfect. It is for your glory that we pray these things.